All right, thanks for joining everybody. Glad to see you. Uh, one quick announcement before we get started. We are two weeks away from Thanksgiving weekend, so we will not have a study two weeks from tonight. That is Saturday, November 26th. We will be off that weekend, but we will resume as usual on Saturday, December 3rd. So once again, thank you for your patience as we take a week off, uh, but that will be two weeks from tonight. We will be back as usual next week, uh, November 19th, before we take a break. So uh, that's all I have. And uh, Robert has another lesson for us. All right. Well, as usual, let's start with the Bible reading. I will click play. Do not let your hearts be distressed. You believe in God. Believe also in me. There are many dwelling places in my father's house. Otherwise, I would have told you, because I am going away to make ready a place for you. And if I go and make ready a place for you, I will come again and take you to be with me, so that where I am, you may be too. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus replied, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you have known me, you will know my Father too. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and we will be content. Jesus replied, Have I been with you for so long and you have not known me, Philip? The person who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father residing in me performs his miraculous deeds. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. But if you do not believe me, believe because of the miraculous deeds themselves. I tell you the solemn truth, the person who believes in me will perform the miraculous deeds that I am doing, and will perform greater deeds than these, because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Okay, and that's it. That's only half of chapter 14. At first, I, I intended to cover the entire chapter. That's always my original intent. But there was really a lot here. And now that I read the text, you know, it's just three paragraphs. I'm thinking, how can there be so much in there? But, I mean... For whatever it's worth, I spent hours just <laughs> laboring over this uh, brief section of text. So let's begin by setting the context. If this speech that Jesus is giving is very clearly a farewell speech, right? He begins, if you remember the end of chapter 13, Jesus was having a conversation with Peter specifically. But when chapter 14 starts, Jesus is using the plural pronouns and verbs. He's clearly shifting his focus to the group and saying, do not be distressed. Okay, This is a farewell speech where he's trying to comfort his disciples as he leaves. This is a very difficult moment, a very emotional moment. Consider the fact that the disciples have given up everything to follow Jesus. And now Jesus is saying, I am leaving. Okay, so it's a very impactful moment. Um, just as a, as a bit of a side note, here in the very beginning, when it says, uh, believe in the Father, believe also in me, or, sorry, 
um, the way that the translation we're using has it, it says, you believe in God, believe also in me. The verb believe in both of those clauses is identical, and it can be interpreted either in the indicative mood or the imperative mood. So you could actually read that uh, sentence in multiple different ways. You could say, you believe in God, you believe also in me. That's if you use the indicative mood in both. Or you could put the, the imperative mood in both verbs. You could say, believe in God, believe also in me, like a command. Um, because the Greek is ambiguous, the, the translators, they have to pick one option or another. And like I said, the our translation is picking the indicative and then the imperative. But regardless of that slight ambiguity, the point of the passage is very clear where Jesus is saying, believe in God and believe in me, right? It is, it is both things that are, that are important that are required. We could say that are commanded, particularly if you take the imperative mood. Um, now, the, the fact that Jesus says, believe in me, is actually quite relevant because uh, Jewish people would not have spoken like this normally. The idea of believing in someone was reserved for certain individuals, perhaps only for God. But we have at least one instance in the Old Testament where the, the Israelites believe in God and also in Moses. It, this is in Exodus 14.31 where it says, when Israel saw the great power that the Lord had exercised over the Egyptians, they feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. So by Jesus saying this, he's at least making himself equal with Moses, if not equal with the Father, in the sense that this is really a property that was normally only belonging to God himself. Uh, so it is a, a powerful statement. And then... Jesus makes the following statement. Uh, he says, uh, there are many dwelling places in my father's house. Otherwise, I would have told you because I am going away to make ready a place for you. Now, what does Jesus mean by this? And there's two possible interpretations. Well, I suppose, you, suppose there's even more possible interpretations, but there's two main interpretations that you are gonna run into. Um, the first one is by far the most popular one, but actually, forgive me, before I get to that, let me kind of set the stage. What does Jesus mean by the Father's house? We are probably thinking of like a household, and that is within the realm of possibilities. I'm not saying that that's not the case, but I think we must keep in mind that the house of the Lord was an expression that was used to refer to the temple. Right. And if you're interested in the blog, I give multiple examples. Like in the Old Testament, you know, that expression is used all throughout. In the New Testament, Jesus himself uses that expression. Now, to be fair, he is quoting the Old Testament. But at any, at any rate, we could say Jesus kind of ratifies that uh, form of speaking. Um, but not only do we find this expression in the Old and New Testament, but it was also common in non-biblical sources at the time, okay? So the house of the Lord or the house of God was a way of referring to the temple. Now, what made the temple so special? It is the fact that God was there, right? In a distinct way, in, in, in a fuller sense. We see, for example, 
in the Old Testament, before the temple, there was a tabernacle. And by the way, the tabernacle was just like the tent version of the temple. Because <laughs> at first, of course, the Israelites were a nomadic people. So there was no permanent structure. There was a tent that would be put up and then it would be taken down. They would travel somewhere else and it would be put up again. Well, we have expressions like in Exodus 35 that say the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Right. And then once the temple is built, we have very similar expressions like the Lord's splendor filled God's temple. Okay, so God is in the temple in a unique and full sense, you know. Um, and Jesus is going to the Father's house. Okay, so that much is clear in this. Now, what we can quibble about is this, this idea of the dwelling places. What are these? Well, um, the, what I think most Christians would say, and I'm not saying that they're wrong, I'm really not taking sides on this one, but I think what most Christians would say is that Jesus is going to prepare a place so that when believers finally go be with the Father, they will, um, you know, uh, there will be a place for them. Because I don't think... Well, I suppose some would, but I, I don't. I don't really know that we ought to be taking dwelling places in a literal way, even under this interpretation. But it is to say, Jesus is opening the way and preparing a place for believers to be with the Father in the future, whenever they go be with God. Um, depending on, on your view of things, you would think that that is in heaven, you know, kind of that place in the clouds with the cherubim and all that, uh, <laughs> or at the end times, right, in the new earth. Well, that's, you know, that's certainly one way of looking at it. The other way that you could look at this, it's a little less intuitive at first, but uh, I think this second view has a fair amount of scholarly support. And it is to say that what Jesus is saying here is that um, now each believer will be a dwelling will be part of the temple because later in the chapter Jesus says I will send the Holy Spirit who will indwell you right who will be within you very much like the Spirit of God lived in the temple um, so each believer will become another room another dwelling place within the temple of God figuratively trying to say that we will all become temples of the of temples of God because his spirit will reside in us okay um, that does seem to jive fairly well with the context um, it also works well with the very present and realized eschatology that John has been talking about throughout right John does not seem to be talking about future events, but things that are happening right now. We saw that, for example, in chapter 5 of John, I think, um, where he says, if you believe in me, you've crossed over from death to life. Right? And I, I don't see the quote right in front of me right now, but I'll, I'll find it here in a second. But point being that John seems to be speaking in the present tense. This is going to happen now. This is not some future hope that will happen in the distant future. Um, the other thing you could say for this view is that if Jesus is giving a farewell goodbye, um, 
or that that's redundant, that farewell discourse, then this idea of I will be right back in the form of the Holy Spirit is much more comforting to the believer than to say I'm going to prepare a place and we will eventually meet again in the distant future, right? Now, I present both of those views because, of course, I, I want to be I want to be fair. Uh, I do describe them a little bit better in the blog if this is something that really interests you and I give more citations and all that kind of thing. However, I I actually want to spend more time on the kind of the overall theme here, um, which is the fact that however you take this passage, whether it's more of a present reality referring to the Holy Spirit, or whether it's a future reality of us finally going to be with the Lord and um, you know dwell in His temple, which is to say to dwell in His presence. The point here is that we return to the presence of God. And if, of course, because we are only studying the Gospel of John, this is not going to seem all that impactful to us. But it really is huge. This is pretty much the story of the Bible. And I, to summarize the story, I am going to quote extensively uh, from a scholar uh, called Sandra Richter. She wrote a book called The Epic of Eden, which is very good at connecting all the dots. Um, and so I am going to read uh, you know, a number of, of quotations by her, and I'm going to connect them because I really want to show what a big deal this is. The fact that, that Jesus is saying you will return to the presence of the Lord, however it is you take that. Well, let's start with the very beginning, okay? In the initial paradise, in the initial heaven, which was Eden, the Garden of Eden, God dwelt with man, right? We were together. So again, I'm going to read this and then I will explain. Since we have learned in this chapter that Genesis 1 and 2 essentially provide a blueprint to God's original intent for humanity, God's people dwelling in God's place with full access to his presence. You will hear this little triplet many times throughout the course of this book. Yahweh planned a perfect world in which the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve would live eternally, stretching their cognitive and creative skills to the uttermost, building their civilization within the protective boundaries of their relationship with him. But treason bred tragedy, a broken covenant, a broken race. The end result was that God's people were driven from God's place and forever separated from his presence. The only hope in this wretched state of affairs was God's redemptive mercy. Indeed, redemptive history starts right here. Okay, So that is a key part of the fall, is the separation where man no longer dwells with God. Okay, um, So it seems like the separation is forever. Like she says, um, this, this is the main problem, right? This is, or at least one of the main problems in the story of the Bible that is that is being resolved. So let me read another quotation by her. When we left Eden, we left a fruit-filled paradise animated by a cosmic river and graced by the tree of life. This paradise, which was once the shared dwelling place of God and humanity, is now defended against Adam's race by means of cherubim. The city of man and the kingdom of God are now separated. Adam and Eve now live in exile from their heavenly father. How will this wretched state of affairs be righted? Okay. Now notice, and this is not really something that I that I really want to get into today, but 
this could come up in the future. Regardless of how you take the narrative of Genesis, whether you take it figuratively or you take it literally, it the point stands. In a figurative sense or in a literal sense, man has been separated from God. Okay, so um, there's really, like I said, it's not controversial in that sense. Now, the problem starts being fixed. The first place where we see this would be in Mount Sinai with the Old Testament covenant, right? The deal that God makes with the Israelite people. So another, another quotation. Here on Mount Sinai, God instructs Moses to build a habitation for the Holy One among his people. Let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. The text tells us that the reason God wants his sanctuary is, quote, so that I might live among them, close quote. Do you hear the echo of Eden here? This will be the first time since the garden that God has dwelt with Adam. Okay. So the the first return to God dwelling with man, with man, it is that tabernacle that eventually turns into the temple. But it's a very limited form of dwelling with man, right? He is in this one location, and to have access to him, you must have access to this one place. But that is not the end game. So the prophets in the Old Testament begin to see the bigger picture. And Bear with me, I'm, I'm almost done with this section, but I'm going to read a couple more quotations. So it says, Whereas Ezekiel <coughs> excuse me, had lived through the period of the exile in which Jerusalem was captured and the temple raised, in these chapters he is seeing with the eyes of vision the restoration of his beloved temple at the end of all things. In his vision, the temple has subsumed all of Jerusalem. The entire city has become the temple. And the temple is now a perfect square. This becomes very significant when we remember that the only part of Solomon's temple that was perfectly square was the Holy of Holies. Thus, in Ezekiel's vision, the Holy of Holies, the place God actually dwelt, has enveloped the city of man. He said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell among the sons of Israel forever. In some, Ezekiel's vision of the rest of the story is God and humanity dwelling together within a city that has become a temple. Okay. So you begin to see that the plan that, that God is showing to the prophets is one day the temple will engulf everything. Okay. We will all live in the temple. We'll be back to living with God, to dwelling with God. And so finally it happens. And this happens at the very end of Revelation, like the very, very, very end of the Bible, uh, in chapters 21 and 22, which say the following. This is straight out of Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no longer any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. To which uh, Dr. Richter adds, What John is describing here is what Christians call, quote, heaven. But unlike the images common to our imaginations, disembodied spirits, clouds and wings, harps and chubby cherubs, 
the biblical authors describing heaven as a new earth. The garden has been restored. The primordial deep has been defeated. And Ezekiel's city slash temple is being lowered from the heavens to serve as the residence of the redeemed. Okay. So I hope this shows you in a very abbreviated way that this has been the goal all along, right? God's plan in the beginning is God's plan in the end. It is to dwell with people in perfect harmony. And when that happens, finally, there is no more tears. There is no more suffering. It is heaven. Um, and in chapter 14 of John, is when we first hear of this being imminent. And again, I, it's hard for me to convey how powerful this is. The fact that Jesus says, I go to the Father's house that has many, many dwelling places to prepare a place for you. Finally, we've reached the end of the story where Jesus says, it is happening now. Our reconciliation with God is now. Um, this is the culmination to the story of the Bible, uh, and it is truly incredible. Well, after that that section, we we get what is my favorite verse, and I'm sure that I'm not alone in this, which is Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, Jesus says that in response to a question by one of his disciples, right? That he says, I don't know where you we don't know where you're going and we don't know how to get there. I'm paraphrasing. And he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, I this is <laughs> just as grandiose as the last statement, that I, the last idea that I was describing. I, I really think that most of the Bible could be, could be described as explaining this statement. How is Jesus the way, the truth, and the life? Um, because as the, as the New Testament says, the Old Testament very much points to Jesus. So it's very much explaining this idea. Um, so uh, I'm going to focus on, on these three concepts. Um, I'm going to try to do it rather quickly since there's a bunch of other stuff that I want to talk about. Maybe I got carried away uh, <laughs> and all the things I planned. But Jesus is the way, right? The idea here is that Jesus, because of who he is, because of his identity and his character, he has access to the Father. He's entitled to that. As we learn at the very beginning of the Gospel of John, Jesus is the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was fully God. But Jesus shares himself with whoever believes in him, in, in him right? He, he will do this through the cross as his body is broken, right? But we, we already know this from earlier in the Gospel of John, like when he says um, that he, he is the bread that has come down from heaven so that a person may eat from it and not die, right? If anyone eats from this bread, he will live forever. So Jesus effectively opens the gate and then um, he is the way through which people can access God. Uh, put another way, if you, if Think back to the temple and the tabernacle, the most interior area of that place, of that building, was the Holy of Holies. And that is where God was, right? In that very central and guarded location, the Holy of Holies. And the high priest in the in the Old Testament, well, and in the New Testament, I suppose, um, he would go into the Holy of Holies once a year 
during their most important holiday, and that was that. That was the extent of of their ability to be present before God. Um, Jesus is described as, as the high priest, uh, not right here, but in other places. But unlike the regular high priest, Jesus can go into the Holy of Holies and take down the curtain, essentially take down the wall, um, and then um, give us all access to the Holy of Holies, give us all access to God's presence. Now, notice that the Greek does use the definite article. Um, it, it's not saying that Jesus is a way, but the way. Um, there is no other way. We can also think back to John chapter 10, where he says, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. And if you remember the rest of that chapter, he says, if you enter any other way, you are nothing but a thief, right? There is no other way. And again, remember when we discussed that, that the Jews thought we have another way, right? Our other way is Abraham, because we're we are the descendants of Abraham. We um, we have access. And Jesus says, nope, there is one way and one way only. Um, Jesus is the truth. Um, if you remember, again, our earlier sessions, I've discussed the fact that John really, he pulls from the tradition of the person of the personified wisdom, right? In fact, probably the closest, I know that some of y'all disagree with me on this, but but I think there's there's good support for what I'm gonna say. One of the closest connections to the divine logos, to the personified logos, the personified word of God, is actually personified wisdom, which the word is Sophia. Um, and this continues that tradition, right? Uh, Jesus is personified truth, personified wisdom. Um, in him, um, all knowledge resides, and it's the kind of good knowledge, because uh, what I mean by that is the Greeks associated knowledge with uh, all sorts of things, like what we would call science, although they would not have called it that. But particularly the Jews, when they spoke of truth, they were thinking of moral truth. What, what leads you to a righteous life that will be a life abundant, right? And that connects us to the third concept, Jesus is the life. And to explain that last one, I want to read from Deuteronomy, from the Old Testament, uh, because I think it explains this idea of Jesus being the life better than I uh, ever could. Um, it's, this is from, um, well, I'm running out of time, so I'm going to read just one uh, sentence from there. No, I'll read the whole thing. Okay. It says, look, I have set before you today life and prosperity on the one hand and death and disaster on the other. What I am commanding you today is to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to obey his commandments, his statutes and his ordinances. Then you will live and become numerous and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are about to possess. However, if you turn aside and do not obey, but are lured away to worship and serve other gods, I declare to you this very day that you will certainly perish. You will not extend your time in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess. Today I invoke heaven and earth as witnesses against you that I have set life and death, blessing and curse before you. Therefore, choose life so that you and your descendants may live. Choose life, right? Love God is to choose life, right? And it's life abundant, as uh, Jesus describes it in John chapter 10. So um, for the sake of time, I'll move on, but 
it, it's it's really just an incredible verse. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There's so much there. Then, um, beginning in verse 8, Jesus begins to speak of the unity between the Father and the Son. And he expresses this idea in the strongest terms possible. They are united. Uh, whoever sees the Son has seen the Father. It is, um, it is as clear as it absolutely can be. Now, of course, we have already seen this concept earlier in the Gospel of Gospel of John. In fact, we saw it at the very beginning in chapter 1 um, when it says, uh, this is in one eighteen. no one has ever seen God, the only one, himself God, who is in the closest fellowship with the Father, has made God known, right? So Jesus has seen the Father and has made him known. Now, um, the Jesus even kind of throws in a uh, I don't know. I'm not going to say that. So um, the, the disciples are still kind of confused. So Jesus helps them out, right? Jesus says, hey, if you don't believe me, still believe the miracles, which I think is a little bit uh, surprising, uh, mostly because in modern times we speak of faith being a blind faith. It's believing in the absence of evidence which is um, definitely not how Jesus spoke, right? Jesus says, believe in the stuff that you're seeing. Believe in the miracles. Are these not evidence of who I am and what I am doing, right? Um, so I think that's important to keep in mind that, that Jesus himself was using an evidentiary argument. Now, in relation to this evidentiary argument, I want to talk about a pretty wild concept. And I'm going to try to make it very brief, uh, because there's other stuff at the end of this chapter that I definitely want to talk about. But I don't know how many of you guys have ever heard of the idea of Reformed epistemology. Um, I, I imagine, unless you're like a, a philosophy of religion nerd, you probably have not heard of this. But I, I want to ask the following question, and I think this might be of interest to you guys. Should we only believe if we have evidence, such as a miracle, right? Or to put it more formally, should we only believe in a proposition because we are making an argument based on evidence-backed um, premises, okay, premises? And you might be thinking, well, obviously, obviously, we, we should believe everything after making some evidentiary argument. But... That's really not great epistemology. Um, and let me explain what I mean. I, I, I'm going to give a very abbreviated description of this, okay? So if, if you're into this and, and you say, hey, Robert, you're kind of skipping around, well, yes, consider the limitations. But there are all sorts of things that we believe um, without the requirement of an argument. Let me give you some examples. What about the fact that the past is real, right? Why do you believe that the universe didn't start five seconds ago? Now, you could make an argument. I'm not saying that you couldn't, but you probably don't, right? You've probably never made an argument for the fact that the universe didn't start five seconds ago. Well, what about your memories? Like, do you believe that your car is parked outside? Okay, assuming you have a car, of course. Well, you don't 
really make an argument for that. You just believe it, right? And you believe it. Why? Mostly, these are things that are experiential. Now, these beliefs that we hold without a formal argument are what, what they're called properly basic beliefs. And like I said, they're generally experiential. And, and for them to be properly basic, not just basic, uh, you need to meet a number of other criteria. Uh, you know, your faculties must be working properly and so on. I'll, I'll skip over all of that. Well, and you may be thinking, Robert, where the heck are you going with this? Why are you even talking about this? Well, there is a, there's actually a famous philosopher. His name is Alvin Plantinga. He talks extensively about this. He, he wrote a book called Warranted Christian Belief, in case you're interested. But the question I want to ask is, is faith in Jesus a properly basic belief, the kind of belief that we could hold without having to form an argument? Well, and that seems to depend on whether uh, Christianity is true. <laughs> because if it is, and its claims are true, and the Holy Spirit is real, right, and we can truly experience the Holy Spirit, then we can hold Christianity as a properly basic belief. Uh, just like I believe that Matt is real, because I can see him, because I can experience him, so I don't really have to make a sophisticated argument for the existence of Matt. I, if I'm really experiencing the Holy Spirit, then I can believe that the Holy Spirit is real, that God is real, without having to formulate some kind of argument. Now, before you go on the attack, am I saying that properly basic beliefs are always correct? That they're indefeasible? No, I am not saying that. A properly basic belief can, in fact, be incorrect. And um, when somebody shows you that one of your properly basic beliefs are incorrect, they offer they would offer you a defeater. Okay, so not everything that you believe experientially is just indefeasibly true, um, but it is logical to hold those beliefs until you have a defeater. In I don't know. I mean, again, I, I don't know of, of how much importance this will be to you guys. This, for me, was tremendously edifying. To know that, you, you know, to really apply this concept that I apply to everything else. I apply to my memories, for example. I don't generally doubt what I remember unless I have a good reason to doubt it. I don't generally doubt uh, my experiences, like the very similitude of the past unless I have a good doubt to doubt it. And I think, and it's been well argued by professional philosophers, that that can very well be the case with Christianity if God really is real and he really is interacting with us. Okay, And I bring this up now because, of course, I made the comment about the evidentiary argument that Jesus makes, but I think um, that we should also keep in mind good epistemology. And if you've never looked into Reformed epistemology, maybe this is the time. Okay, I will move on to other things that I'm sure are much more interesting to people. <laughs> so I know I have about four minutes before the time. I normally finish speaking, but I'll, I'll hurry up. Okay, the end of this passage is probably the most controversial and one of the verses that personally I have the hardest time interpreting. Now, I'm not going to leave you completely high and dry, but I, I'm i just going to tell you that ahead of time, that I find this to be 
difficult. Jesus says three things at the end of what we'd read. Uh, he says, you will also do miraculous deeds. In fact, you will do even greater miraculous deeds than what I've done. Um, and then he says, whatever you ask in my name, I will do. Now, certainly all three of those statements should give us pause, right? This is immediately sounding like the prosperity gospel. Hey, name it and claim it. You know, if you want a car, just say, in Jesus' name, I declare I will get a car. And then... Boom, you get a car, right? I really don't think so. Um, then uh, it's that's probably not what it means. But at the same time, I really don't want to dismiss this. Like I, I, I don't want to just think, well, I don't like the prosperity gospel conclusion. So boom, I'm just not going to think about this passage. It's got to mean something, and whatever it means is quite powerful. Okay, well. I'm going to give you a couple of takes on the idea of doing miraculous deeds. Okay. Um, I think, I think that the most popular Protestant interpretation, uh, and what I say I think because it's all like I've done a survey, but it is that the kind of miraculous deeds that we are going to do. Um, they are not miraculous in the same sense that we would use them in relation to Jesus, like turning water into wine or something like that. Um, but we will do actually the same kind of thing, um, but generally, not always, in non-miraculous ways. So notice that in John's Gospel, there, there's this huge focus on the miracles they point to Jesus, they point to who God is and the good news. Um, and we as believers, we will be doing that, right? We will do we will be doing that through our lives, and there will be million millions of, of us doing that. And so in that sense, we're participating in these deeds. Now um, we will do even greater deeds because and again, this is not necessarily my view, but I do think that this is the majority view. Because once Christ has died and risen from the dead and the Holy Spirit is available to all, we will, in some sense, be bringing salvation to people, which is the greatest miracle of them all. Now, I say we will, in some sense, be bringing salvation to people. I phrase it like that very carefully and on purpose. Because if you are on the more Protestant side, of life, you the, our only participation is uh, sharing the gospel, and uh, perhaps you know you you could add other things into that, um, strengthening each other, encouraging each other, and this such. If you're more on the Catholic side of life, you probably would include the sacraments, right? That the great miracles we're doing it. It's the same focus as this idea of bringing Christ to people, bringing redemption, but uh, there's more specific works that the church is doing, right? Like the sacraments, uh, like turning the wine into, into uh, Jesus' blood and the bread into his flesh. Actually so, right? Um, the forgiveness of sins after confession, right? The priest is actually doing that. It, it's, so there are more works there. 
Um, and I know that I'm going quickly through this, and, and if you guys have questions, great. And if not, you know, I'll go over this a little more slowly. But there's there's one more thing that I want to mention. This idea of praying in Jesus' name. Um, I don't think that this means that if you pray for anything, you're going to get it. I think there's clearly here an interplay between the believer. The believer will not receive if he does not ask, so you've got to ask. But Jesus will only provide if this is really within his plan. Okay, so with that out of the way, I actually want to talk about what our takeaway should be from this particular passage. And I, I promise I'm almost done and I'll open it up for questions and comments and all that. Um, I think we forget how prayer worked for the Jews at the time. And I cite a passage in the Old Testament. Uh, it's, uh, it's out of Second Chronicles where God says continually, hey, if, uh, if another nation fights against you, but then they want to be allies with you again, they must pray at or towards the temple. If you guys, the Israelites, if you've done messed up, I mean, if you have messed up and you want my forgiveness, you must, pr you must pray at or towards the temple. If, you know, if the foreigner comes to your land because they, uh, you know, they, they want to follow your God, they must go and pray at or towards the temple. Okay. The connection with God was through the temple. This is not just me kind of reading between the lines. This is not just explicit in the Old Testament. But after the first temple was destroyed, you can actually read this in the Talmud, where at least there's one rabbi who explicitly says, the Lord no longer listens to our prayers because we no longer have a temple. That is how it works. Now, why is this important? Because in chapter 14, Jesus is talking about believers becoming the temple or being within the temple, however you want to interpret that, which is which is fair. Um, well, if believers are within the temple or are the temple, then do they still have to go pray at the physical temple or towards the physical temple? And Jesus is making it very clear, no, you don't. That old covenant is ending here in the sense that now you can pray directly to God in Jesus' name. That is the big takeaway from this. Not what are the limitations on what I can pray for in Jesus' name, but the fact that we no longer have to go through the physical temple. We can go directly to God. This is a huge change. And I will say this last thing, and then I'll open it up to questions. Uh, you might remember what Jesus told the woman at the well. He said, but a time is coming, and now is here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father seeks such people to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and the people who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And this was directly in the context of talking about the temple. Okay, so that is the beauty of this passage, more than the other tricky questions that come up. And with that, I will open it up to questions or comments. We'll see how this goes. <laughs> sure. Thanks, Robert. As usual, guys, if you'd like to offer a thought, a question, a point of discussion, just write the word question in the chat. Just the word question will suffice, and I'll be happy to bring it in. Um, first of all, I uh, well, my creators and handlers are, are pleased to hear that you have been duped into believing that I am, in fact, real. That means that the, <laughs> the presentation is on point. So that's, uh, that's good. They're happy to hear that. Uh, but I, I appreciated what you 
uh, your explanation of kind of self-evident truths or things that we believe to be true based only on our experience or not, you know, point A, point B type type arguments. Uh, and, and certainly I grant the point about, I believe my car is parked outside because I remember parking it out there two hours ago. And, and you could have similar pieces of knowledge based on that experience. For me, uh, as, as I'd like to hear more discussion on how this translates to Jesus or the teachings of Jesus, because that's got to be a different type of experience. And I don't know if I've ever had it. It's not as direct as parking my car, even though it, you can experience things in an indirect way. I'm sure I just, I'd like to hear a little more explanation of that. Cause I don't think I've experienced that. Or if I have, I don't think I've picked up on that. What is like, and I, I don't, if you'd like to offer personal experience, like what you think your personal experience is that speaks to that effect, I'd love to hear it, but I don't mean to put you on the spot to be too personal. I'm just curious for what this looks like. Yeah. Um, so I, I bring this up, right? Because we are going to move into a discussion of the Holy spirit. That's going to happen next week. I thought it was going to happen this week, but you know, but there is very much a sense that the Holy Spirit is like Jesus. And it, and I mean that like as much as I can, like the Holy Spirit really uh, is personal like Jesus. He, he is with us. He teaches us. He inspires us. He strengthens us, the whole thing. And so if this is true, right, uh, just like I was able to experience Jesus if, if I had been there, I should be able to experience the Holy Spirit in some way. Um, and I think if we do experience a person, whether that be Jesus in the flesh or the Holy Spirit, uh, that does give rise to what I'm calling a properly basic belief. Now, what does that experience look like? I think because it is a spiritual experience, and here I can't shy away from this. I know some people would want me to be much more kind of like scientific about this, but but I can't. Like Because it is a spiritual thing, it's not going to look exactly like experiencing a car or a person or whatever, well, I mean a physical person, it may be things like uh, much of our moral experience, the fact that we may have this strong sense that we are in need of redemption, that we may have this very strong sense that there is a right and there's a wrong. We may have a strong sense that we're made for a certain purpose. Uh, and uh, we may have a strong sense that there really is this good thing or this good person that is out there. Um, and once you become a believer, I think that there is a sense of joy and peace and reassurance that the Holy Spirit brings. Um, and because it is spiritual, it's harder for me to describe it in more detail. Um, but I, I think it's it's very much real. Yeah, I, you're, you're speaking my language. All of those concepts, big concepts of, of the moral framework, uh, purpose in life, all of those things that I sort of grant as self-evidently true and I can't quite explain why or wrap my head around why. And maybe it's, I mean, you think of the car parked outside. Maybe to me, it's more like footprints in the snow out in the yard. Like it tells me someone was there even if I don't know at the moment for me at least who that was or what it was about but there's there's something there that i can't deny and i want to figure out you know what caused that there's something about what you're describing there that i can't quite put my finger on but i can't sit at least in my own experience say is completely false or way off either so that sort of stuff is exactly what i'm 
I'm interested in, in learning about and exploring and thinking about. So thank you for that uh, point of discussion and the extra explanation of it as well. Uh, let's see. Brian uh, has a comment. Brian, go ahead and chime in. Sorry, I had a hard time finding the the mute the unmute button. Uh, you know what? Why don't you hold off on me? I, I'm sure. Uh, mine's going to be a little uh, little chunky. So okay, somebody else uh, first, and I can take the the last few minutes if we have any. But yeah, I do have one more. Oh, uh, Ryan has a, a a written question that he'd like me to read. But as of I'm now, gonna, you're the uh, the only other her- one. I'm going to put a link in the comments if anybody's interested. I, I want to I want to kind of address Robert's discussion about epistemology. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to monopolize the time. I'm going to put a link in the comments if anybody has the interest to to read a a blog article I wrote that addresses this directly. But otherwise, if there's time, I'll 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 take a couple of minutes and get my thoughts off my chest. At sure. The end. Yeah, let me uh, read Ryan's and then we'll check to see if anybody else has any additional commentary. It looks like people are sort of quiet tonight. So if you do have thoughts in your mind, uh, go ahead and put question in the uh, chat and I'll get to you. But I'll be right back with you, Brian, after we uh, address Ryan's point here. Uh, He says, do you think Jesus telling us he goes to make a room for us in his father's house is a correlation to where he was talking about being born again, as in born uh, from his line? become of his pedigree, move into his father's house by believing in him and his way. I think that there is definitely a connection to being part of his household. Um, we we have discussed this in the past, like in prior sessions, the idea that the, right, the servant is not a permanent part of the household. The son or daughter is a permanent part of the household. You see this like in the parable of... Um, the prodigal son. And this was very much part of Jewish culture, this idea that if you are in the household, as in you are a son, you have certain rights and privileges, you're part of the household forever. Otherwise, you are not. And I very much see the connection here that there is a play on words. I think that that John is using the idea of the house of the Lord both in the sense that the house of the Lord is a temple, but also in the sense of the household of God, where you will be part of the household of God. You're being, uh, you know, kind of grafted in. And uh, and that, I think, honestly, is as much a theme in this chapter as the idea of the temple. Uh, just for the sake of time, I, I focus more on the one instead of the other. But yes, I think that is a, an astute observation. Thanks, Ryan. Uh Tim has a comment as well, and then we'll get back with you, Brian. Sorry, oh, sorry, one sec. Stop testing. Sorry, I had Discord open. I was hearing myself come back uh, from the testing room. Pardon me. Yeah. Um, sorry, I just wanted to make a comment, especially because, mate, you looked a bit confused at the time, so I don't know if it's something you've heard of regarding prosperity doctrine. Hmm. So I just wanted to make a uh, I haven't heard the term before. I'll have to refresh my memory on exactly the definition here i assume a lot of people here will be familiar with it maybe robert will have a slightly different definition yeah but it's kind of the best way i could describe it is if you ever go to a church and they uh insist that you put money into the church and that you'll get they'll generally just refer to blessings in return so you know you'll get a nice new car or you'll get huge riches or you get it's this kind of idea that um at least the version I've ever come across of this investment into the church, 
means God will basically reward you in some sort of tangible, I've, physical way. I've heard the word a, reciprocity as well. Is that a word that's applied in this context, or am I thinking of something else? I mean, maybe sort of, because it is kind of the idea that you put in and you'll get out. Yeah, it's almost it's almost like the ultimate form of guaranteeing that if you invest into the church, you get a whole bunch of stuff out, uh-huh. um, which is not really the case. I mean, there's no promise when you come into faith that you're going to have an easy life or you're even going to have all that pleasant life. There's no guarantee of that. Uh, there's no guarantee of if you invest in the church that you're going to get good things back. You, you may not. Uh, it's not really the point of it, but it really is just the... And again, you see a lot of... I, I see... We have some big churches here in Australia, but we don't necessarily have the big, the you know, the big televised ones that they do in America, with the exception of maybe Hillsong. Um, but you do see it a lot in those ones of like the televangelists of you know, you know, uh, expect blessings back if you give money into our into our ministry mm-hmm. and all that sort of stuff. So, again, yeah. Robert, I don't know what sort of thought you have on that, but no, thank you for explaining that. Perhaps. I, I think I think I assumed a little too much and just threw out the term, but it means exactly what you're saying. It refers generally to churches and preachers who um, say that you, because you invest in the gospel some way, somehow, then you will receive riches in return. And that generally goes along with the idea of just being able to claim things. This has become quite popular in the last few decades. Um, like... You can like in the name of Jesus say you will get a car and and it's going to happen right um, they, and they say this regarding jobs regarding relationships like if you know if your job is going poorly you can just claim a better job and it's going to happen because Jesus said right whatever you ask in my name you're going to receive and while I think that this passage is very powerful that it really does mean something so I don't want to just like write it off I really don't think that it means that. I don't think that it means that you can just like ask for anything, you know, I want a brand new Ferrari and it's just going to appear. Um, and that, so that's what I meant by the prosperity gospel. Um, and uh, I think in maybe somebody listening today is into that and I'm sorry if I've offended you, but I, I think that perhaps you ought to consider even the lives of the apostles by the records that we have. Most of them, perhaps all of them died as martyrs. Right. Um, I mean, there's just no kind of historical uh, argument to make that if you're a Christian, you will therefore be wealthy or get the job you want or get the car you want or get the wife you want or whatever. So I'll leave it at that. All right. Thanks, Robert. Thanks, Tim. Uh, Danby, uh, if you can be, uh, I'm sorry to put you on the clock, but we might have to be a little quick here because I know Brian wants to get his point in. Uh, and there's a written question, Daniel. I see. I'm Daniel. I'll I'll get to that question if time allows. But I want to make sure Denby and Brian get their time. Uh, Denby, go ahead. Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll try to be as quick as I can. So, you know what you're asking about, like, uh, you know, how how you would know Jesus, like, have, have you see something as an experience of Jesus? And mm-hmm. uh, I think it's easier for me to answer than than for some people, which is I lived in uh, Japan for more than twelve years, and um, Japan is not a culture where mercy is part of their culture. Hmm. It's like if you um, make a mistake, uh, everyone's attitude is, well, you shouldn't have made the mistake. You know, it's just like, you know, like, well, if you don't 
want to have like to suffer all the all the worst consequences for that. You just shouldn't have done it, whatever it was. And you know, in, in our culture, we have the phrase "show no mercy," but that implies that you know, it's kind of like um, putting aside the usual rules, the usual rules of mercy. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it's like we're we're like fish that are in this water, and so you know, it doesn't even occur to us that that we're um, you know breathing this stuff, you know, that we're living off it off it. Um, but there's lots of the world where that just doesn't exist and like you know like mercy in the roman empire would be like you know if you're if you're uh conquered by the romans they're not going to kill all of you that's mercy you know and so uh, there's a lot there's lots of things the other thing is you see the crucifix on my wall there mm-hmm. it's like well you just think about like what uh that means to us it's like a symbol of hope it's a symbol of all these things but you know, if you like if you think about what it actually was it was an instrument of humiliating death by torture. But um, even now, even, even when ISIS has been crucifying people, even though uh, it's still used in that way, the, the meaning that comes through Jesus has overwhelmed that. So I think that that maybe might give you a sense of, of that, if, if you get what I mean, like that there's all these things that because you kind of take them for granted, you don't think of them as, as experiences of Jesus, but they are. Yeah. Yeah. I, I sort of think of these concepts in the way uh, you think about the quote unquote, a discovery of gravity. You might think like we, we credit uh, Newton with that and yeah. the understanding of it. Certainly he is to be credited, uh, but it's not as though it was like an invention. It's not as though it was something that he created. It's just, it's a discovery of something that was already there and everybody kind of instinctively knew it. You know that if you jump off a building, you're going to suffer consequences even before Newton could explain it through the laws of physics. And yeah, I I think it's certainly possible that there are a lot of forces like that, that we, I, and we just take for granted that we don't fully understand because we never even bother to think about sometimes. And, and that's the sort of uh, curiosity that, that brings me here. So thanks for some thoughts on that. Uh, did you have anything you're, you're in welcome. closing? Well, no, just just that that it's just like um, it's kind of crazy to think that something that terrible, yeah, intrinsically that terrible, could be transformed so much just by one man. Yeah, but it it was. You know, we don't think of uh, you know the crucifixion of the Spartan, you know the Spartacus and the five, you know the five five hundred, you know, five thousand Spartans. We don't think about the really dreadful side of it generally, even when in the twentieth century in the twenty first century it has been used that way. You know the meaning that comes through Jesus mm-hmm. over overshadows that, eclipses that. Anyway, that's all for for me. I just well, sure. Me. Thank you for the thoughts. I appreciate it. Let's Thank see, uh, Brian, it looks like you uh, are are good. So I will interpret that as uh, you're all finished up. But I will remind everyone that if you're interested in uh, Brian's thoughts, he is going to link a blog post of his in the comments of Robert's blog. Uh, so thank you, Brian. And people can can read that if they're interested in additional discussion on the issue. We are right at the top of the hour, Robert. Um, I do have one more written question for me. I don't know if you are on any kind of time crunch, but I, I will take it if you're able to hang out. And I should ask Robert, did you have any thoughts on what Denby was saying? Uh, no, but I do want to say 
um, because of, of what Brian will post, uh, just, to, just to clarify, I am not saying that everybody should be looking uh, for this like internal experience. Um, but what I am trying to, to say is, what if you're not Philip in, in the Bible, right? What if you have not seen these miracles? What if you have not seen the water turn into wine or whatever? Um, are you still rational to even believe in God, you know, to believe in this stuff? And of course, we could talk about a, a number of evidences that we have, right? Like the historicity of the resurrection. And of course, we could bring in the cosmological argument. You could bring in uh, philosophical arguments, a number of things. So I am not in any way affecting my epistemological standard. But what I am saying is, even if you have not really thought about those arguments even if you have not witnessed a miracle yourself could you still be justified and warranted in holding the christian belief and i believe that the answer is yes because it can be properly basic that that's my point just i don't know if that helps at all but then you guys can check brian's link and i see uh brian was referring to the link in the zoom chat here but brian i would certainly encourage you to post it in a comment um, over on robert's blog just so people who are listening later or perhaps they want to return to it later just so there's access there. If, if, uh, if you'd be able to do that, that would be great. And of course, thank you for your uh, contribution. He says he's doing that now. So thank you, Brian. I appreciate it. There was one more written question from Daniel for me. Uh, up to this point, which of Jesus's teachings that you can recall reflect most clearly in your own life? Which do you find uh, uh, contrast with your own life? Well, as far as the ones that speak most to me, Maybe I have a recency bias here, but I did find today's discussion of the way, the truth, and the life to be uh, pretty relevant in terms of what I'm searching for and the way I, I view and process the world. As in, you want to live a life according to moral truth, not just for its own sake, but because it's what brings you prosperity. It's what brings you a good life. It's what brings you survival itself. Um and so that sort of discussion is exactly what I'm looking for. It's, it's like we were we were... Uh, discussing earlier where it seems like there's some kind of inherent knowledge or some inherent sense within me that I'm supposed to operate a certain way. Uh, why? What put that there? That's what I'm trying to answer. But those sorts of questions about the results that you get by making the right choices and following the right leaders in life are certainly the questions that I'm looking to answer. So that sort of stuff uh, always um, grabs my interest. As far as lessons that contrast with my life or my views well we mentioned it earlier i don't know if it contrasts i just there are certain episodes of jesus being i suppose more forceful than i ever expected or in many ways that i than i would ever probably operate in my own life um i'm i'm not necessarily the kind of guy who's gonna like grab somebody and shake them and i know maybe jesus stopped short of that but he did have his episodes i will i that that particular lesson about the market at the at the temple I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, mm -hmm. but that sort of forcefulness of just like walking around and telling people how it is, cracking whips, flipping tables, all that, that is uh, number one, it's, a, it's just, it was different than my perception of Jesus, but at number two, it's different from the way I would operate. Uh, I'm not like a, I, I, I'm much more of like a sit down, try to convince people politely type person. I'm not like a, I'm not a, I'm not a forceful guy in that way. So I don't know if it contrasts because I don't I don't think the lessons that he was teaching are necessarily flawed. It's, I suppose it's the it's the strategy or the tactics that would probably contrast with my style. But 
Um, you know, if you're going to be forceful, it's great to have the truth on your side. You know, you know, it's better to be a forceful truth teller than a forceful liar. Certainly. Uh, Robert, did you have any thoughts on either of those points? No, no. Um, that was great. I'm glad that we're exploring all this stuff. <laughs> Corn pop in the chat says uh, Jesus was fiery, but uh, a fiery, but mostly, mostly peaceful protest. You know? <laughs> uh, True. And, uh, thank you for the question, Daniel. Appreciate it. Okay. Any, um, any last thoughts from you, uh, Robert? No, that was it. Uh, next time we will finish chapter 14. And I promise I'm trying to go through this as quickly as I can, but there's just so much there. All right. Well, thanks, Robert. Thanks, everybody, for your participation tonight. As usual, much appreciated. We will be back next Saturday. That is November 19th. And as a friendly reminder, we will be off Thanksgiving Saturday. That's November 26th, resuming on December 3rd. So have a great night. Hope to see you back next week.